Welcome back. Business of Film, episode number 13. This is a crafttruck.com podcast. My name's Jesse Eichmann, and today I had the pleasure of interviewing Michael Baker. Michael Hill has been in the business now about 15 years, uh, started as an intern with Ridley Scott, as you'll hear, and then went on to uh, really be one of the first guys on the ground with Think Film. Uh, you know, cut his teeth there. He's now an independent producer. Just an awesome, awesome guy. Um, and you know, there, there's there's so many gems in this podcast that it. You know, I I'm not going to spill the beans now, but you know, just even till the last penny drops in this podcast, you know, I'm I'm just taking away some really awesome insights from Michael. So I want to thank thank you, Michael, for coming on the show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, go check out Craft Truck crafttruck.com for some of the other stuff that we're up to over there uh, including our uh, in the cut episodes with editors and all the episodes we got up there uh, with cinematographers uh, on our Through the Lens series so lots of cool stuff to dive into over at Craft Truck and uh, over here at Business of Film we just uh, continue to roll on with uh, Michael Baker in this week's episode Michael Baker, welcome to the show Thank you very much for having me, Jesse. You know, it's always funny when we do these introductions because it's not like we haven't been talking for the last 10 minutes before I push the record button. <laughs> Shh, you're not supposed to tell. <laughs> so, uh, Michael, uh, I, I've known you for a long time, but our audience you know, doesn't probably know you as well as I do. So can you take a minute and just introduce yourself to our audience, you know, a little bit of, a, of your background, how you got into the business and, you know, whatever, you, whatever you'd like to share. Sure, gladly. Um, I uh, my name is Michael Baker, and uh, I have been in the business. I'm starting to push 15 years. Not not quite there yet. Um, dabbled in and out through the years. Uh, you know, did uh, an internship, like many people did as a student. Uh, I was lucky enough to intern at Scott Free Productions with uh, Ridley and Tony Scott. Uh, then went back to school, did some other things, and uh, around 2002 found myself uh, a job with ThinkFilm. ThinkFilm was a uh, started off as a North American distributor, later got into international sales as well. But when I started, it was a, a fairly small, uh, up and coming, fledgling distribution company. I was, I think, employee number seven. Um, started off sort of as a, a jack of all trades there, uh, taking delivery of films, writing the backs of video boxes, etc., and kind of moved into an acquisitions and development role. So I would, uh, from the acquisition side, I would attend lots of festivals and film markets and be on the phone with uh, agents and, and producers, etc., buying rights to movies, which would then hand over to our... Uh, our great distribution team who would, who would handle putting it out. Um, and on the development side, I also ingested all the scripts into the company, uh, read them, did coverage, kind of reported to the team, decided what to move forward on. And when we did get involved um, in pre-buying the rights to films as a distributor, I would just oversee them on behalf of the company, um, sort of in a... a uh, a production supervisory slash executive producer role uh, where needed. And um, that was great learning experience. I was there for about seven years. Uh, and when that ended, I decided that while I really enjoyed um, the acquisitions part of it, I wanted to 
give a sh- give myself a, a chance to produce some stuff on my own. So I went out, launched my own company called Bunk Eleven Pictures, and that was about six years ago. And I've uh, been involved either as a producer or executive producer in about twelve or thirteen films since then, um, from all sorts of budget levels, all sorts of genres, um, just getting the experience learning and trying to get stuff made and uh it's it's been a good venture since then in between there i've done uh some consulting in all different capacities including uh releasing and marketing as well as uh, writing distribution plans uh, so let me yeah no, there's there's i mean what's amazing is the, is the diversity and the breadth of of what you've been involved with over the last you know approximately 15 years so let me just go back to the very beginning because I, I i do want to go go through i guess part of the learning and part of the uh you know the takeaways that 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 you've had over the time that you've been in the business uh, and certainly kind of come to where we are today in the business now. But you kind of blindsided me there at the beginning with that whole Ridley Scott, Tony Scott thing. And and I, I got to ask you, while you were there as an intern, what were some of the, I mean, I don't know whether you, you interacted with those guys, but I'd love to hear what did you learn from those guys when you were there as an intern? Uh, I'll be honest. I learned very little from uh Ridley and Tony directly, and that's not uh, any sort of uh, insult to them. They're just busy guys, and I wasn't doing that much directly with them. My, my interaction with with Tony was minimal. Um, Ridley was in the office a little bit, and you know we'd say hi in the hall, but there was not really too much of a conversation there. I did get a chance to work really closely with uh, both VPs of production uh, and with the president of the company. Um, for a, this was back in the day. Well, I guess they still have a studio deal, but it was back in the day when lots of people had studio deals. But uh, basically, the job of a production company like that was to find and develop material, and then they'd walk into the studio and say, "Hey, uh, this is the film we want to make." <clears throat> and the studio would either give them a yes or a no, and then they'd go and make it. So I, I was. Were you doing uh, coverage for the? Like, yeah, whoa. I was exactly. I was involved in in finding stuff, doing coverage, development, etc. So, okay, the, that's the biggest. Yeah. The biggest thing I did was read. Okay, so I, th- this is great. You were exposed to some of the best material, I'm sure, in the business, and doing coverage for them. I'm sure you. Uh, what was it specifically in the coverage that, when you were doing it, that would make you? Think you know either structurally or character wise. What were the what were the um, what were the elements of what you were reading that would make you go you know this is something I, I got to take to the guys and recommend or pass or you know like your I guess rating system or how you would think about scripts inside that company. Sure, the uh, there's a lot of different factors obviously in any script the the. I was always on a search for certain types of product. We were reading mainly to find uh, Ridley Scott his next job, and he was looking for uh, something larger, epic. This was uh, just in terms of timing. It was right when he had finished up GI Jane, and he was just starting prep on I Am Legend uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which of course didn't end up getting made with either of them, but they were working on it for, for some time. Um, so we were looking for big, bold projects. He was just before Black Hawk Down and was actually tasked with finding a war film. So anything that came in that had any hint of, uh, of war, um, 
that was a priority to read. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of what we're looking for, I mean, it, it, it's really just something that touches you. They're, they're both very visual directors. So, um, the contained type of films were of less interest to them, uh, rather than something that would be big, but more than anything, they're just wanted to make good films. Um, they, they did both have a reputation, as, or just have reputations as being visual stylists, but the truth is, um, they really know every element of it all. They know acting and, and performance and they know character and, uh, and, and they know story and would make notes. You'd see great insight into all those elements. Um, so it's, it's a shame that either would get pigeonholed into being these visual stylists because there's so much more than that. Um, the biggest insight for me in reading all these scripts was the quality of what we were reading. Uh, and to be honest, I, I was less impressed uh, with what we got than what I expected. And the stuff coming from the major agencies um, really wasn't that great. And you could see, okay, this is why uh, so many scripts have multiple writers and they go through so many different drafts. Because frankly, the stuff that's submitted isn't all that great. There's a kernel of an idea, um, but it's very rare to read something and put it down and go, wow, that was perfect. They should just go and shoot this. You understand why so many people put their fingers in and want to have notes and bring different writers and somebody who's better at dialogue or somebody who's, who's better at action to, to build it up. Um, so it was very insightful from seeing how, how that works. And I was frankly surprised that, uh, a company and some directors of such high esteem, um, who've made some great films were getting the, quality of scripts that they were getting i guess that just goes to show that a good script is really 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 hard to find very hard yes completely and and one of the things i would do when it was quiet was i would read you know they had this phenomenal script library just thousands and thousands of scripts and so i would pull old scripts and read them and it would be from films that had been made and it would be fascinating to see what changes had been made um I remember looking at about four or five different drafts of the script to the film seven and each one was remarkably different. You could see the development process that, that the script had gone through and all the different iterations that the writer had to do probably because of all the various notes he got. And they were all somewhat different than what actually ended up on screen. So it was, it was great insight into the actual development process. That's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's actually refreshing to hear that in a way because I think there is, to a certain extent, a misnomer that if only, you know, I was getting the good scripts, I could, you know, make a great movie or, you know, if only I could right. get my hand. But the reality is, I mean, from, from, from what you're saying, it sounds like even the best of the best, there's still just so much work and it's just so difficult and it just, it takes so many hands to, to make something great. And that's, you know, it's, it's refreshing to hear. So it's cool. Yeah. And it's still to this day. I mean, I'm reading constantly and I'm getting scripts from all over the place. And unfortunately, most of them aren't great. Um, the goal for me is to, because I, I just, I don't expect to find something that again, I'm going to read and go, okay, let's put this into production tomorrow. Goal is to find something that I think has the right idea and it's got potential. And then you can work with the writer to, to take it from good to great. So you took that experience, I guess, into your days at, 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 at think film. And I, you know, I obviously think film is a company that, that, that came, that grew, that kind of got bought out, that crumbled and, <laughs> and, and, and on to the next. 
what I really want to hear, I guess, in terms of um, the inner workings of that company and your experiences there, as you, as because you, because you took that experience into becoming an independent producer, and I certainly want to talk about that today, is you know what did you take out of being a distributor that you know that you were able to see grow. Uh, what did you take from your from from your days as a distributor into being a producer? Uh, I, a number of things, but the biggest influence I'd say. Uh, well, there's probably two. The first is I tend to look at things from a backwards position um, because of my distribution background. The first thing I think when I'm putting something together, uh, trying to find a certain type of film or reading a script is who's the audience. Um, and I don't want to say that that is good or bad. I think there's great merit to uh, someone sitting in front of their computer, turning it on, and just writing a story that they want to tell for themselves and something that's passionate for them. But for me, uh, it's important for me that people see these films. So I want to know who the audience is in advance. Uh, I want to be sure there is an audience. And then make a film that I think they're going to enjoy. And that, that doesn't mean pandering and, and, you know, making a film aimed at the lowest common denominator. It's a matter of just being targeted and smart. And I want to enjoy the film. I want to make sure it's something that I would like, but I also want to make sure that there's others there like me. I, I do think, and this comes from, uh, years of acquisitions that I have a pretty good sense of, uh, what works, what people want to see and that my tastes are fairly, uh, simpatico with certain audiences, I and mean, that's that's a big part of the acquisitions game. It's you, you watch you know, on any given weekend. I would sit down and, on my couch and watch twenty movies, um, and from there I would have to choose. Okay, I think this one's going to work because people want to see this. Uh, and you know, I, my instincts were pretty good. Um, and and those so were, the same thing goes those for scripts. Were, those were on the completed completed movies, right? Those were on completed movies when I was doing acquisitions. So the yeah. the challenge when you're producing is you have to be able to visualize and imagine what the finished product is going to be, which of course is a lot easier said than done. Um, but in the same way, I'm always thinking of, okay, will will I be able to sell this? Will people want to see it? Will I be able to get a distributor excited uh, because they know that there's an audience for this? Um, How do you, what are your evaluation criteria for that process? That is to say, you know, what are the things that you think about? What are the questions that you're asking when you're determining if there's an audience? How do you know there's an audience? Are you shooting from the gut? I mean, you, you're, you're saying, obviously, that a lot of this is coming from the experience that you've had in the distribution game. But can you kind of break that down into its component parts? Sure. I, I can't deny that there's an element of gut to it, just instinct, um, knowing what it is. If you overanalyze uh you probably get it wrong and, and focus on the wrong thing. So yeah, a certain amount of it is, is good. I mean, you can't, you can't really define funny. You know, you, you read a script and either you think it's funny or you don't. Um, as for, uh, other elements, you know, I, I like to feel that, oh yes, this is a, a role that's really interesting. I know I can attract a name actor to this role because somebody's going to want to play it because it, they're either doing something really cool or, or it's going to be a challenge for them to play or it's something we haven't seen before or it really fits with someone's on-screen persona. Um, if I read something and I, I can tell that, oh, this is going to be really tough to cast, well, that's, 
that's challenging because uh, I know that well if I'm going to spend years of my time on this uh, and and really slag through it and I, I you know I, I got bills to pay too so you want to make sure things get made um, you want to be sure it's it's a project that you're going to be able to attract cast to and get made because without cast it's uh, it's obviously difficult to to raise the money and get the distribution and get your film made um, other elements I look for when I read are on a, a realistic standpoint do i feel it can be done or you know is is the technology around to do this in an in an in the independent world or can i come up with a creative way to do it um am i gonna have to travel to six different cities to shoot this or can i shoot it in just one city um you know you're you're not doing a, a perfect budget in your head but you are breaking down uh on a very loose basis the general idea of how much you think it could cost and what kind of money you'll have to put together to get it made. So all those elements come into play. Right. So you're out now, you've got Bunk 11, you've made, you know, several pictures. Um, kind of let's, let's just fast forward to, you know, where we are right now in the business. How difficult is it to put financing together on a project uh and it's, it's a loaded question i know but i guess from the, uh, the, the 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 perspective i'm asking it from is from kind of that international uh pre-sales game or you know being able to get uh bridge or gap financing i kind of want to get this kind of three pick 360 overview from you about how you think about financing and putting your your films together sure and and one of the first things I do when it's time to start putting the film together is I just make a list, a list of uh, the various ways to finance it, be it through international pre-sales or, or, or gap or um, equity or whatever there could be. And then where I can go for those sources. Um, and the market is constantly changing. You, you really, what works one day, the best way to assemble films one day doesn't necessarily work the next. Um, if you're looking at international pre-sales these days without cast, it's incredibly challenging. Um, that's really the driver in the international market. And so uh, if you're planning on financing your film that way, then you need to know that you've got at least some recognizable names that when you go to the German buyer or the South Korean buyer, they're going to go, okay, we recognize that name. They've been in lots of successful films. We know that audiences want those people. Um, so that's, that's critical. Is there um, a, uh, is, is, is there sort of this budget threshold on the ability to get pre-sales? So for example, let's say somebody was doing a low budget movie, half a million dollars or even a million dollars. And they had an actor that was recognizable in, in, in Germany. Is that enough of a threshold to get pre-sales, or, or are we talking movies that need to be in that three, four, five, and up um, in order to have something where a buyer feels that they're putting money into, um, I guess, a quantifiable film rather than you know somebody's low-budget indie indie genre movie? Right. I, I think you've hit on a very very important point, which is true. That yeah, if you're doing something at the micro-budget level. Um, Buyers are going to be sort of skeptical, skeptical and, and concerned. They don't know what they're getting, and there is comfort in knowing that there's a larger budget uh, involved. Um, you know, it also means they'll probably pay more, which is which is good. Um, if if you are doing something lower budget, 
then the odds of having a name that's of any value is is tough. If you do have them, then it's going to come across as a passion project for that actor, um, which you know should inspire uh, the buyers to some degree because they'll say, "Oh, okay, well, this person obviously really wants to do it." Um, separate to that is the budgets that films are sold at aren't necessarily true. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, just because a budget is written on a sales sheet that uh, this costs $5 million doesn't mean it really costs $5 million. And that happens in both directions. Sometimes um, you make the film seem more expensive than it is, so people feel confident about the quality of the production they're going to get. Sometimes people um, actually go in the reverse because it looks... Like a great sale to go, oh, look how cheap we made this movie, look at how inexpensive it is. It was a passion project, or uh, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's going to be a sales point. It's look at look at what we did from a profitability standpoint because we made it for so little. So you have to be wary of what budgets are quoted to some degree. That said, I would say. 80% of the time, uh, just to spitball a number, um, the higher your budget, the more credibility you're going to get amongst the buyers. They do want to know that, okay, this is a film that's going to have a credible camera department and there's going to be real lighting and it's not going to look like an Ed Wood movie. We know that we're going to be delivered something of professional quality. And in, in that respect, you know, the reputation of the director matters, the reputation of the producer, um, which always makes it harder for first-time filmmakers um, but there's ways to sell that too. Right. Uh, and I, I guess, could you, I don't know whether you have any more recent examples of films that, that you've been involved in, in the financing of that you can kind of share the process of what you went through to get at financing. Are there any sort of, uh, films off the top of your head that you kind of take us through the, you know, this, uh, I guess you could say a, a mini case study of, 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 of a film about, and how you went about putting the pieces together? Um, yeah, well, I could walk you through Penthouse North, which was uh, <clears throat> about two years ago that we, we put that together. Um, and that was sort of the standard um, financing plan of doing pre-sales and getting gap against those territories that uh, we hadn't pre-sold. Um, so in that case, we had a script and a director Um the director was Joe Rubin, who had uh, has a lot of studio films under his belt. Um, and let that me was stop a good for, yeah, mm-hmm. l- Let me stop you for half a second. What was the first piece of that package that came together? Well, the, the script and the director came together on that one. So that was actually really nice and <laughs> beneficial in that um, the, uh, the director and the, the writer, uh, Joe Rubin and David Lowry, worked together many times before and they were talking and they said, yeah, let's do something small and fun and easy. And, um, so they, they put together this package with them together. David wrote the script with Joe to Joe to direct. And then that went out to market and it's, it, it found its way, um, through various sources to me and my producing partner on that one. Uh, so we had a, a, a director who had, Credibility because he'd done a number of studio films before. And the next thing was going out to cast. Um, we were able to cast it with uh, some 
great actors, very recognizable names and faces, Michelle Monaghan and Michael Keaton, both of whom have been in both uh, big studio films and independent films. So they had a lot of credibility. And with that package, we were able to attach a great foreign sales agent. We got uh, Lionsgate International to sell it. Um, so with the package, uh, we took it to market, the first major market, was uh, AFM, the American film market, in November. And while there, they pre-sold most of the territories to a number of uh, different distributors around the world. Uh, we took the contracts from those uh, those territories that purchased it, took them to the National Bank of Canada, and they lent us money against those pre-sale contracts. And the territories that didn't sell, we had estimates from uh, Lionsgate on what they think they could sell them for. And we showed those estimates to the National Bank. And because they're a very highly recognized, highly respected, very credible sales agent, the bank said, sure, we, we believe you. So they lent us uh, money against those potential sales. Um, we pre-sold the rights in the U.S. to the Weinstein Company, and we pre-sold the rights in Canada ourselves to uh, Alliance Films. And then we got uh, some money from tax credits that we borrowed against and a little bit of private equity, and uh, that was that was the financing for that film. Um, went ahead and shot it, and then once we delivered all the uh, territories that um, had pre-sold. Uh, we delivered to them. They paid the bank back. Uh, we got our tax credits in, paid the bank back with that. And then Lionsgate uh, went and sold the remaining territories. Um, and we paid off the gap to the bank with that. That's great. That's a very, almost sounds like a very traditional way of putting your film together. Yeah, it was pretty traditional. Um, we were, you know, it wasn't without its struggles, as, as every film is. Just because it was traditional doesn't mean it was easy, but we certainly managed to get it done. Um, and and the key to being able to do it in a traditional way, I think, was uh, we had a, a very sellable genre, which was thriller. Uh, we had a sellable director, um, and we had sellable cast. So that's the type of package you can bring to the market and uh, people will be able to seize upon it to pre-buy because they know what they're getting and it's very familiar to them and they're comfortable with the cast and the budget level. That's a great example. And thank you for going into such detail on that. That's awesome. Yeah. That, no, that's really cool. Um, so what are, the, what, are the, what are you working on right now? What, what are the kinds of projects that you're looking at putting together um, that you think uh, – let me actually be less specific as, you know, what are the specific projects that you, Michael Baker, are working on versus what are the kind of projects that you're looking for that you think, you know, would work well in the market today? I'm personally working on a number of different things. And any, it, this is a, uh, it's a, a juggling act. So I've got about 12 different projects in quote-unquote development um, right now. Scripts at different stages, uh, some things with directors attached, some things out to cast, some things that I'm just talking to writers uh, about new drafts, uh, some things that I've just acquired rights to. Um, even some things that are just at the concept stage that I'm talking to writers about putting stuff together. And, and really, because it takes so long to put a film together and because not everything's going to go to production as quickly or as easily as you hope, you really have to manage multiple projects uh, at the same time. Uh, in terms of what 
I'm looking for when I think the the market's looking for when it can get together. You know, I'm looking that I actually enjoy the type of films that work well in the market, which are uh, lots of thrillers, um, be they action thrillers, psychological thrillers, etc. Um, some action films. Um, I don't have a lot of comedies. Um, I have one that I love. It's it's something I've been working on for years and trying to put together. And frankly, it's been incredibly challenging um, because comedies don't travel that well. And, uh, and so to know that you're going to get your money back by selling it internationally is, uh, is very tough. What, what's funny in Russia is not necessarily funny, uh, in Ethiopia or in South Africa, uh, or in Belgium. So, uh, because humor is, is very specific, it's, it's hard to play and hard to pre-buy it or pre-sell it rather around the world. Um, yeah, I'm working on a, a remake now. I got the rights to a, a classic horror film that uh, David Cronenberg's first film that I've been working on putting together, and um, it, we're now just about to get a new draft of the script, and we'll go to cast with that. Will that take uh, a month to cast, or will it take a year to cast? Who knows? Um, actually, it's uh, yeah, challenging. Yeah, let's talk about the casting process because you, you you've touched on it now yourself a number of times. Uh, you know, in you know thus far, and it's something that we're always hearing here on the podcast, which is cast, 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 cast. You need to have the cast to, you know, get your sales, to get people comfortable with the project. Um, what is your packaging slash casting process? How do you, you know, take me through what you do? Uh, sure. Step one for me, um, and probably for most people, is lists. Um, and it's as simple as, and this is one of the fun parts of the job, is you figure out who your key characters are, and then you just start making lists of who your dream cast or who would be great in this role. And uh, I will aim for the top A-list, completely unachievable names, to up-and-comers, to people in the middle, to people that haven't even been heard of. I'll make as long a list as, as possible, you know, 30, 40 names for a character. And then you get into the process of narrowing it down. Okay, we've got time. Maybe we'll take a shot and see if we can get, you know, Bradley Cooper to read it. And uh, you go to his agent try to get it done. But at the same time, you're planning. You always have to be a step ahead planning your next move. Who's the next actor I can go to? Um and uh, you know, aiming as high as you can, and then and then trying to starting to get realistic on well, who's a good fit? Who's available? Who works in the budget range that we have for this film? Um, in terms of actually approaching them and and getting the cast attached, your biggest asset there will be having relationships with the agents or managers, or having a casting director has the relationships uh, and sometimes you'll choose your casting director based on which cast you want and who represents them um, so you use a casting director who you know has a great who's, who's really credible and done a bunch of films uh, with a particular agency or particular management company because you know that you want three or four actors from that agency um, I think it helps to be able to make an offer it helps to understand the financing game because one of the first questions that an agent is going to ask is, is this film financed? Um, and if you're making an indie, it's 
probably unlikely unless you've got uh, an angel financier somewhere. It's probably unlikely that you've got $5 million in the bank and you can, you can bank offers or make pay or play offers. So you have to be able to explain, well, it may not be 100% finance right now, but we've already got this amount of money in place from incentives and we've got this distributor interested and we've got this sales agent who's going to represent it. And so I know that I can package this and put this together within a matter of months. It's just a matter of, uh, of solidifying the cast. Um, and you need to be able to, I don't want to say convince because that makes it sound like it's, it's a sales job when, you know, it, it should be true what you're saying, but you need to be able to, I guess, align the agent with your thinking, uh, make sure that they know that you have the ability and the credibility to get this picture made. The difference between working with, uh, directly working with and speaking with the agents or managers of cast and using a casting agent can you talk about the dichotomy of those two options? Because, you know, certainly on, I don't want to say micro-budget, but let's just say mid-budget films, you may not want to or be able to even afford hiring a casting agent up front, uh, and or you may just feel like you want to go directly to the agent or manager of the cast directly. So I'm just kind of curious about, you know, I, I'm sure it's always case-specific, but... Um, and, and you kind of answered that before, but because you've given sort of, you know, I'm using a casting agent sometimes and I'm talking to the agent other times, uh, can, can you kind of separate those two together and, and, and just sort of talk about that process? Sure. Well, the irony there is that the, the less you can afford a casting director, probably the more you need it. Because if you're someone who's able to make a, a $40 million film or a $100 million film, they probably know who you are. So you can probably call the agent directly and they'll go, Oh, Oh, Jerry Bruckheimer. Of course. Yes. Uh, I can tell you, I, I'd be glad to take your offer. Whereas if it's your first film and nobody knows you and you're trying to put everything together for $500,000, you probably can't spare 10 grand for a casting director, but you also would benefit the most from them because they will give your project credibility. Um, so I do think it is important um, especially at the lower budget level to try and get a known casting director because that, that will, that will certainly help you, um, get your foot in the door and, and it doesn't have to be someone famous. It doesn't have to be a top level casting director, but it's really about someone who has relationships with some of the agents who's known them, who can it, really what you're looking for is someone that the agent is going to take their call. Uh, cause anybody can call up an agent. I mean, they're, their phone numbers are on their websites. You can call the switchboard and, and you can use IMDb Pro to find out who represents who. Um, but it doesn't mean they're going to take your call or take you seriously. Um, you know, there's, there's different ways around that. You can badger them. You can befriend the assistant. Um, you can make a, a really big but credible offer. You can use a lawyer. Um, to uh, put together your offer, you know, a law firm may not charge you anything or may not charge you a lot um, to put the offer on their letterhead, though they'll want to know that your credible can back it up, um, but they may be able to do that, and that won't cost you as much as a casting director. But if you really want straight answers, you're going to want someone who knows these agents, who can call them and has a personal relationship with them, and, uh, and be able not just to 
get it in their hands, but also be able, someone who's going to tell the casting director, you know what, this just isn't right for my client, or my client isn't looking for this, or, you know, I don't think I can get it to this actor, but what do you think of this person? Um, or look, this, this person's on vacation or in rehab or wherever and is not going to be reading for the next month, so you might want to go to someone else unless you want this to sit around. Um, I, I do find in the casting process that uh, time is your biggest enemy because it's, it's not so much getting the script in, it's getting the script read. Um, you, you're hesitant to put a, a short deadline on your offer because then they're not even going to bother. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to leave it open-ended. And then six weeks later, you're calling back and they still haven't read it. Um, so you do have to be careful with that. A casting director can help navigate those waters if you don't have the experience yourself or the relationship with the agent. Um, if I've done a deal with an agent on another film and established a relationship with them, um, then I can probably call them myself as opposed to having to use a, a casting director. But even when you do use a casting director, I, I always end up talking with the agent or the manager or the lawyer at some point anyways. The casting director will get the foot in the door, it'll get the script read, it'll get them excited. But once it's time to get the deal made, it really falls upon the producer to work out those terms in terms of the um, the salary and the perks and uh, all those various things. So you, you always end up with the phone, the agent at some point, which can be time consuming and sometimes frustrating. But at the end of the day, it's, it's very beneficial to a get that experience and, and be use that opportunity um, to build a relationship with the agents because they are gatekeepers. And uh, if you have a good experience with them and with their clients, it can lead to great stuff in the future. That's some really awesome advice there, and uh, and uh, thank you for the, all those all those various options. They are all all well taken. Uh, <laughs> let me let me jump forward uh, into the realm of just distribution in general, uh, because uh, you know I, I I sense you're a guy that kind of has you know a pretty wide angle lens on you know the the, the state of the distribution landscape right now, um, and I want to just get your take on you know there's. There's, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different, you know, self-distribution methods, you know, online. Uh, just, you know, recently there, you know, there are, there are, you know, mergers happening between digital platforms and, and, um, and traditional theatrical distributors. You know, what is your, you know, view of the field right now when it comes to the distribution landscape? I'm, I'm going to leave this as an open-ended question. Sure. I- and, and my open-ended answer is, I don't know. Um, and anybody that tells you they know is either lying or delusional. Um, we can predict. <laughs> we can see what looks like is going to happen. But things change so fast, uh, you just you don't know. And, of course, it, you know we're not selling hamburgers. We're selling films. And so each case is very different. Um, it's, it's funny. I, I have a a friend who made a movie and you know, spent three years of his life on it and uh, put so much into marketing, got tons of attention and got these great theaters booked and uh, wonderful reviews. And the weekend that the film came out, there was a huge storm on the East coast. And so people were stuck in their homes and no one went out to the theaters to watch it. And so despite everything he put into it, the film bombed. Um, and that is, is a long way of saying that as much as 
I can try and predict what's happening with distribution and all those things. There's always these factors that are completely out of our control that will affect how your film does. So, yes, iTunes is a great platform. Netflix is a great platform. Traditional theatrical is a great platform. VOD is a great platform. But who knows? Each film is is very unique. I might have, I might cast a film with an actor that nobody knows, and then all of a sudden, in between when I've shot my film and it's released, that actor is in a huge sitcom that takes off, and the value of the film from what I first imagined it has exploded and gotten way better. Or I might have cast a huge star who gets involved in a sex scandal uh, in between shooting and releasing, and all of a sudden my film is worthless. So take away, and I will get to the distribution platform side of it, but take away that aspect of it. And there are so many factors that that change the success of your film and the right way to release it that you just you you can't look at anything in a in a box. Um, there's way too many influential pieces in there. In, in terms of distribution itself, it feels good to me that people have embraced different methods of releasing films. I would still love to have a film released three thousand screens, exclusively theatrical you know, out there for six months and then go on VOD and, and DVD and iTunes and all that. But sometimes it's more appropriate for the film based on the genre, the cast, the audience, the crowdedness of the marketplace to premiere in other ways. Um, and it's interesting to see there. I don't, I don't know of too many actors that are, uh, let's call it VOD proof these days. Uh, I mean, if you look on your Barker channel for, for VOD, if you look on iTunes every Tuesday, uh, every week, you can see some really important and A-list actors that now have had their films uh, not released in theaters or, or going day and date in theaters. And you know what? At the end of the day, if people are seeing them, then that's great. Would it be amazing if they were seeing them on a 100-foot screen? Yes, but... People aren't going to theaters. It's just to get out there. There's too many distractions. Um, there's shifts in the marketplace. And so if that's the way that people are going to watch it, then great. I, I think there's very few people who dream of their movie being watched on an iPhone with a, a four-and-a-half-inch screen um, simply because – and that's not an, an insult to those that go that way or people who do watch it that way. But when you're dealing with a visual medium – to watch it on such a small screen, which, you know, even though they have great resolution these days, it's not the same as seeing it blown up in a darkened theater or even at home. You know, I don't mind if somebody's watching something on a, a 50 inch TV screen with surround sound at home. That's, that's high quality. Um, but you take what you can get. There are so many films being made that aren't getting distributed at all. At this point, why make them? if nobody's going to see them. So if you can get it out there in any way, if you can ensure that people are seeing your film, then that's great. And the other aspect of it is profitability because it's a lot easier to make your next film if your last one was profitable. Um, so if you can make it for a price that you can recoup through whatever type of distribution you get, then then that's great. And I know people who have... <clears throat> done everything so they can get that theatrical experience or that premiere experience and they've paid to rent a theater and roll out a red carpet to walk down and and feel that importance. 
I think it, it's it can be a fun experience, and it's nice to have that happen. But ultimately, you know, in a big theater, <laughs> getting six, seven hundred people seeing your movie that way. I want to know that there's millions of people that are having the opportunity to see the film and that's not going to happen traditionally uh, anymore except for a few exceptional breakout films. So hopefully you get into a couple festivals, maybe you get a small theatrical release, but um, if you can just get people to see your film and hopefully enjoy it and spread the word and, and turn a profit so that you can get your next one going, then I think that's what you've got to focus on, um, be it through the internet, through a distributor, direct distributor, etc. I, I still think that distributors are experts in what they do, and you're better off going through a distribution company than um, going through uh, the whole self-distribution world, which can be done, but it takes an incredible amount of time and effort in areas that aren't your expertise for the same reason that if you're producing a film, you could also rent the tables and chairs uh, that you use at lunch to feed your cast and crew. But it's not your core business, it's not your core competency, and it's only going to take away from the focus on doing the right thing. So when it comes to distribution, I, I'm a very strong believer in letting the people who are experts in it do it. So we're running a, a little long on time here, but I want to ask you one last question, um, sure. which is the importance of festivals. You touched on it in your uh, in, in what you just mentioned there. And I'm just kind of curious about you know, how you feel about, you know, a, a guy, you're a guy that's been to many, many festivals. What's your feeling on the, the festival landscape right now um, in terms of getting your film known, getting your film out there? The, the festival world has two very different perspectives. I look at the festival world from a buying and selling perspective, which really only happens at a very few select festivals. You know, there's there's buying that happens at Sundance, at Toronto, at Cannes, uh, a bit at South by Southwest, a few places like that. There, there's not too many others. Um, then there are the hundreds, probably thousands of smaller regional film festivals. Um, I, I think Toronto alone has something like 100 festivals, um, just these ultra-specialized places. And those are great if you want to have that festival experience and get some word of mouth, And it, especially now that you can promote your film via Twitter and Facebook, etc., and get, get the word out. Those smaller festivals are great because things can become viral and spread online very easily, um, which just gets the name of the film out there. Um, but if you're looking for significant sales impact – it's really critical to be at one of those big, big festivals. Um, without them, it's probably... I, I would forgo a medium festival and do a private sales screening for distributors in New York and L.A. Um, before I would have a world premiere at uh, a smaller mid-film festival, simply because you're not going to attract a buyer there because they're not attending those festivals. Not because there's anything wrong with the fest, but simply because there's only so many hours in a day, so many days in the year, and you can't be an acquisitions executive and be out of the office constantly going to every single festival searching for these tiny films, these needles in the haystack. Um, so even though a lot of great films don't end up getting into the festivals, um, they're out there. They just need to think of different strategies. And there's lots of ways to uh, premiere them. I mean, nowadays people are sending links to buyers. So that's it from a buying 
and selling perspective. If you're just looking for the experience of attending and doing a Q&A and letting audiences see it, especially if you've got a smaller and expensive film, then they're a blast and it's great and it's a chance to travel. Uh, the one thing you have to remember is A, there can be an expense to it because the festivals, the smaller festivals don't necessarily have enough money to fly you in and put you up and pay your, your expenses and all that. The second is every day you're at a festival and doing a screening is another day that you're not working on your next film. Um, so I've seen these filmmakers with great ambitions to make a film a year who wake up three years later and realize, oh, they're still flogging the film they shot two and a half years ago um, and haven't had a chance to even start on their new one. That is such uh, an insightful point. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to end the podcast on that, but I, I think there's just there was, there's just a ton of insight in that last answer you gave uh, about film festivals, uh, specifically when you mentioned it. You know, it's better to forego the even the, the medium sized festivals just to have you know uh, an exclusive buyer screening uh, in either LA or New York. Uh, just for, great advice. Uh, and thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time today. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for the great questions. Uh, you know, we like to please, Michael. We like to please. But even more important than that, we like good answers. And uh, I think you certainly delivered on that in spades. So we'll have to get you back on the show again sometime. Gladly.